0: The snow falls gently yet steadily as you and your comrades huddle together for warmth. It's the kind of snowfall that clings to the eyelashes and clothes before slowly melting away. You peer over the edge of the trench to look out at no man's land, only to find that it has been transformed into a winter wonderland. The ordinarily grey, dead expanse of land that separates the Allied front line from that of the Germans is now stark white with snow. What's more, it's quiet, and has been quiet for weeks now, and neither you nor anyone else has seen hide nor hair of the enemy. Just then, your commanding officer announces that he has spotted something through his binoculars. You and your fellow troops sit up, rifles at the ready. When asked what he sees, he simply points across no man's land as a handful of German soldiers emerge from their trenches, carrying no weapons and waving a makeshift white flag, the international symbol of surrender and truce. Naturally, you and your comrades are leery. You've been taught that the enemy are cunning as well as skilled warriors that could easily match and or outdo any military prowess you British or the French might possess. Everything appears innocent and friendly. But is it, in fact, a trick? This tense moment may sound like something from a fictionalized account of the Great War, more commonly known as World War I, but it was, in fact, based upon a real event. Known as the Christmas Truce of 1914, it was a series of unofficial ceasefires between Allied, namely British and French troops, and their German adversaries that took place along the Western Front in the days leading up to Christmas of that year. What led to the Christmas Truce? How long did it last? And how, if at all, did it change the public's opinion regarding the war? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to a special holiday edition of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The story behind the cold, barren, snowy battlefields of the Western Front actually begins on a warm, bright, sunny day in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, now Bosnia and Herzegovina, six months earlier. On June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sofia were traveling through the city to inspect the Austro-Hungarian imperial forces who were stationed there. Having been annexed by the joint empire five years prior, the scars of that forced acquisition still ran deep among some of Bosnia's citizenry, namely the Serbian nationalists who themselves felt it to be rightfully theirs. In retaliation, a terrorist group known as the Black Hand set about making an example of the Archduke, who, incidentally, was also the heir apparent to the Austro-Hungarian throne. At around 10.45 that morning, as Franz Ferdinand's motorcade was passing of delicatessen, a 19-year-old Serb named Gavrilo Princip stepped forward from out of the crowd and shot both the Archduke and his wife point-blank, killing them. This was the catalyst that served as the spark which ignited the outbreak of war in Europe. No sooner had Ferdinand been buried did Austria-Hungary declare war on Serbia. In response, Serbia's ally, Russia, mobilized its troops to their defense. Soon, Germany joined the fray, declaring war on both Russia and France before carrying out a full-scale invasion of Belgium on August 4th. Recognizing this as an act of aggression, Britain declared war on Germany. Thus, war spread throughout the continent in a sort of domino effect, from Britain and Germany in the west to Russia and Turkey in the east. The first couple skirmishes of World War I were decisive victories for the Allies. In mid to late August of 1914, fierce Serbian resistance led to a humiliating defeat for the Austro-Hungarians at the Battle of Ser. At roughly the same time, the Russians crushed Austro-Hungarian opposition in the Battle of Galicia in what's now Poland. But that was along the Eastern Front. On the Western Front, it was a different story entirely. In the Battle of the Frontiers, in eastern France and southern Belgium, the British Expeditionary Force, as well as the French Fifth Army, suffered crushing blows and a devastating defeat at the hands of the Germans. As a result of this victory, Germany was able to successfully invade northern France, and it wasn't long before they began setting their sights on Paris. But the joint British and French forces were far from done fighting they pushed back, delaying the invasion of Paris and allowing more French troops a much-needed time to march westward to defend the city. The ensuing First Battle of the Marne resulted in an allied victory in which both French and British troops successfully defended and held the capital from along the shores of the Marne River to the east. Deterred from repeating their disastrous attempt at invading France, the retreating Germans and the French-British opposition chose instead to outflank one another along their respective northern flanks in a campaign known as the Race to the Sea. The sea in question was the North Sea, with whom both France and Belgium share a coastline. The plan was simple, to envelop the northern flank of the opposing army, be it Allied or German, through the regions of Picardy, Artois, and Flanders, the former two in France, the latter in Belgium, to see who could take all land leading up to the North Sea. Though intense fighting broke out and lasted throughout much of the autumn of 1914, including the month-long Battle of Ypres from October 19th to November 22nd, no victories were declared on either side. So it was that, by December, most if not all fighting had ceased along the Western Front. The idea for a Christmas truce may have come from one of two places. By December 1914, a series of peace initiatives had been proposed by both the general public as well as religious leaders. As the holiday fast approached, a group of 101 British suffragettes penned the open Christmas letter, a public message addressed to, quote, the women of Germany and Austria, unquote, that called for peace and an end to the conflict. On December 7th, Pope Benedict XV himself issued a public statement calling for an official truce between all warring factions, urging that, quote, the guns may fall silent at least upon the night the angels sing, unquote. Not surprisingly, it was officially rejected by each of the respective governments, but was taken to heart by troops along the Western Front. So it was that, on Christmas Day, the French, British, and Belgian allies, as well as the Germans, put their differences and weapons aside and emerged from their trenches to ring in the holiday together. It all began on Christmas Eve. Various Allied accounts from that day reported hearing joyous singing of carols and other traditional holiday songs from the German lines. At one point, brass bands were even heard, accompanying the chorus. Then, at dawn the following day, unarmed German soldiers emerged from the trenches, calling out Christmas greetings in English and French. At first, the Allies thought it to be a trick. But, seeing the opposition's behavior and good cheer, they too emerged and met them halfway out in no man's land, shaking hands. Both sides then proceeded to exchange gifts, namely cigarettes and rations of plum pudding and even set up Christmas trees along their respective front lines. Lieutenant Kurt Zemish of the German army would later recall, quote, How marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus, Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. It was even said that a football match, that is, soccer, to my American listeners, broke out between British and German troops, though this remains inconclusive. Despite the joy and exuberance of the festivities, the ceasefire also served a more sobering purpose, the retrieval of the dead on both sides. Though just three days out of the 1,567 total that made up the whole of World War I, the Christmas truce served as a reminder of the good in humanity despite hellish and unbearable circumstances. Several attempts were made to repeat these actions in the three subsequent holiday seasons throughout the war, but it was the threats of disciplinary action by officers on both sides that dashed the hopes of any such displays. Regardless, it served as a beacon of hope for people around the world, a light that endured through one of the darkest chapters of human history. Perhaps we in our current era could take a lesson from the Christmas truce of 1914. In such times of fear and divisiveness as these, we need only remember the brave and valiant men who dared defy the politics of war, to unite and turn a battlefield into hallowed and sacred ground. May they forever be an example for us, should we ever lose our way. Thanks for listening. I'd like to take a moment to wish those of my listeners who celebrate a very Merry Christmas. May the holiday be a happy and blessed one for you and your families, and may the New Year bestow good tidings upon us all. Thank you so much for your love and support these past six months. It's truly been an incredible ride so far, and I'm eager to see where it goes from here. Remember, if you like the content I create and are interested in supporting my podcast, just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. Any and all help. Even just listening is greatly appreciated, and I'm grateful to all of you who have stuck by me on this journey so far. Also, be sure to give me a follow on Instagram at History Loves Company. That's history underscore loves underscore company. Feel free to drop me a message and say hi. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time, and a very happy holiday season.